0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lithub Radio. Hello. Sylvia Plath was born in Boston in 1932, the daughter of a German born professor, Otto Plath, and his student, Aurelia. After her father died in 1940, Plath's family moved to Wellesley, Massachusetts where her mother taught secretarial studies at Boston University, and Plath embarked on a path that she would follow the rest of her life. She was a gifted student, she wrote poetry and stories, she won awards and prizes and scholarships, and she began to suffer from the severe depression that would ultimately lead to her death. She left behind her estranged husband, the British poet Ted Hughes, and their two young children, and she left the world an astonishing body of work for a 30-year-old. Her works include the novel The Bell Jar, her journals, and above all, her poetry. As Joyce Carol Oates said, her best poems, quote, many of them written during the final turbulent weeks of her life, read as if they've been chiseled with a fine surgical instrument out of Arctic ice, end quote. Robert Pinsky, the former U.S. Poet Laureate, said, quote, Thrashing, hyperactive, perpetually accelerated, the poems of Sylvia Plath catch the feeling of a profligate, hurt imagination, throwing off images and phrases with the energy of a runaway horse or a machine with its throttle stuck wide open. All the violence in her work returns to that violence of imagination, a frenzied brilliance and conviction." Plath's storied life, especially her marriage to Ted Hughes, has been a source of admiration, misunderstanding, speculation, and incendiary anger for the generations that followed. We will be digging into that story in a separate episode. Today, we're going to focus on the poetry. Five poems selected by the president of the Literature Supporters Club, the superfan Mike Palindrome, that's coming up today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Sylvia Plath. What a poet. What a thinker. She was absolutely fearless. It's rare that you read someone with such early success who's so bold. It's as if these poems emerged like wild beasts having escaped their cages, as if the circus train tipped over and the panther escaped and is walking through the streets of town. Not all young people write like this. Sometimes you read a successful book by a young, successful poet or novelist and you think, well, this is a young person writing for older people, looking for a a pat on the head, a nice accepting smile, an award. That's the puppy dog, all dressed up, eager to please. Something nice about it, something cute, something reassuring. Look at me, old person. I know how to do this. I know how to do this. I know how to do just what you want. I'm not going to name names of authors like this. I assume you've felt this once in a while when you read a book by a 22-year-old, a book designed for critics, a safe book that wants to win prizes. Plath says no. No, 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 no. Literature isn't a well-groomed puppy dog being entered into a show. It's the panther leaping out of the wreckage and stalking into town, breathing fury, staring with pent-up violence, assessing the town, aware of its difference, aware of its power, lurking with unapologetic menace. Beauty, too, but combined with danger. That's Platt's poetry. They are still astonishing, her poems, even today. It's no wonder she's still read and admired, revered. There's no one else like her. Her life sometimes threatens to swallow up the story of her poetry, and her poetry sometimes suffers for being forced to live up to the story of her life. So we're going to split the two. We'll talk about her poetry today. We'll talk about her life in a different episode. If you'd like to read along, we're going to do the following poems. The Applicant, Lady Lazarus, Morning Song, The Colossus, and The Stones. If you'd rather just listen, not head to the paper, the printed page, we're going to have readings of these poems, too. We have The Applicant, as read by Sylvia Plath herself, Lady Lazarus, also read by Plath, Morning Song, is read by Meryl Streep. The Colossus will be read by me, Jack Wilson. And finally, The Stones, once again read by Sylvia Plath. So let's take a quick break and come back with our old friend, Mike Palindrome, and our discussion of the poetry of the great Sylvia Plath. Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hatcast. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hatcast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is our old friend here to talk about the doomed genius poet, Sylvia Plath. It's the doomed, or maybe not so doomed, president of the Literature Supporters Club, Mike Palindrome. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. Okay, so you picked out five poems for us to go through for Sylvia Plath here today. Was it hard to pick just five?
1: It was very hard. I, I, I felt like I, I had to pick a few very famous ones. Mm -hmm. I picked a handful of different from the ones I picked this time around. I think Robert Lowell says in his introduction to Ariel that it's her poems are a controlled hallucination. And I always think Mm -hmm. of that as all the poems sort of read together.
0: It's like an immersion in her mind and her world.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, you get more. I think this is the case with a lot of poets, but um, with her especially, you get more out of each one. Mm -hmm. You know, if you read read them together.
0: They're cumulative. Yeah. So she's, I mean, her biography is so famous, and I think her poetry is pretty widely known as well. But let's say you were to encounter someone who has never heard of her or read her work before. What would you say to that person before pressing Plath's books into his or her hand?
1: I would say that she's very accessible Mm -hmm. for a non-serious reader of poetry. Mm. I think she's, at the same time, she's very uh, classical and sophisticated, and she she reads sort of like almost like a historical poet, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of allusions, uh, you know, you get a real sense of her education and her background. Right. Um,
0: but she doesn't go overboard like Ezra Pound or T.S. Eliot.
1: Yeah. And that, I think, you know, Ed, Pound's a great example because he's very inaccessible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think he you know I think a lot of people would love to they love the story behind the cantos but when they actually sit down to read the cantos
0: um, yeah. you they're, almost they're, have to read it you have to read an annotated version or or count on reading very slowly line by line and and maybe having to do some research in order to figure out what it is that he's referring to
1: yeah and I've always felt that Plath, the way she her escape from meter and rhythm still seems very traditional to me in mm-hmm. a way.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's, that's what I was going to say when you were saying that she was accessible. It made me think, yeah, if you can read a Robert Frost, you can read a Sylvia Plath. But Frost will also give you what some people who maybe don't read a whole lot of poetry might think of as... Uh, giving you some rhyme, giving you some meter, giving you the feel of what they might expect poetry to be. And Plath doesn't necessarily do that.
1: No, I think she, she, she doesn't kind of... Welcome back, the reader. Mm -hmm. They're poets and and novelists who sort of give you a second crack if you've lost the train of thought and where they're headed. But she sort of um, leaves you behind. And I think in that sense, um, there are some poems of hers and some moments that remind me of Robert Lowell. Because Robert Lowell to Mm -hmm. me is you know such an elitist. Yeah, I love his poetry, but I also think that. If the goal is to communicate with as many as many people who don't agree with you, he, he's sort of a failure
0: Yeah, I prefer Plath for that reason and also Elizabeth Bishop another one of Lowell's contemporaries
1: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, Bishop is very very much conversationalist in a way that Lowell isn't
0: hmm So yeah. how often do you read Sylvia Plath?
1: I reread her all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's it's funny because with poetry, there's so much I haven't read compared to, say, fiction mm-hmm. that it surprises me how much I reread certain people like uh, her and James Tate, um, mm. Ashbery, Auden. I was thinking of Sharon olds. I was thinking of the the poets I really reread.
0: Mm-hmm. What state of mind are you in when you take Plath off your shelf? Are you looking for a? Are you in a certain mood, or are you looking for a particular kind of experience?
1: I know this is gonna sound crazy, but I actually <laughs> <laughs> I actually read her when I want something like s- substantive and almost life affirming.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm. I
1: feel like she, you know, I obviously everyone knows her story, but there's something in her poems that i find very like life-changing and almost like a challenge like th- this is what you should be getting out of life.
0: Right. Well, yeah. we know what the result was, but while she was writing, she's writing yeah. almost like a survivor.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. That there's she's emerged through mm-hmm. the other. Yep. It's almost like she's come through at least in her poems and, and you get that She's choosing sense.
0: she's choosing to live. Yeah. I mean, and one of the reasons why she's choosing it is because of poetry, because of her love of of language and imagery, and you feel like poetry is is kind of sustaining.
1: Yeah, I mean that. I think that's something that maybe is a little overlooked uh, with her poetry that the the um, the language is beautiful, mm-hmm. and the language is you know, like I was saying, like life affirming. A lot of babies, a lot of moments of of joy and celebration. I mean, that kind of stuff is very present in her poems, and people may not really think of that right off the bat when they they think of her poetry.
0: Mm. Okay, so let's listen to our first poem. Uh, This is The Applicant by Sylvia Plath.
3: The Applicant. First, are you our sort of person? Do you wear
4: a glass eye, false teeth, or a crutch, a brace or a hook, rubber breasts or a rubber crotch, stitches to show something's missing? No, no? Then how can we give you a thing? Stop crying. Open your hand. Empty? Empty. Here is a hand to fill it and willing to bring teacups and roll away headaches and do whatever you tell it. Will you marry it? "'It is guaranteed to thumb-shut your eyes at the end "'and dissolve of sorrow. "'We make new stock from the salt. "'I notice you are stark naked. "'How about this suit? "'Black and stiff, but not a bad fit. "'Will you marry it? "'It is waterproof, shatterproof, "'proof against fire and bombs through the roof. "'Believe me, they'll bury you in it. "'Now your head, excuse me, is empty.' I have the ticket for that. Come here, sweetie, out of the closet. Well, what do you think of that? Naked as paper to start, but in 25 years she'll be silver, in 50, gold. A living doll everywhere you look. It can sew, it can cook, it can talk, talk, talk. It works. There is nothing wrong with it. You have a hole, it's a poultice. You have an eye, it's an image. My boy, it's your last resort. Will you marry it? Marry it. Marry it.
0: Okay. I've got a quote here from Sylvia Plath. Let me just say this was written in 1962. Uh, Let me get the exact date here. Yeah, written on October 11th, 1962. The poem was first published in the London magazine January 17th, 1963. And it appeared in Ariel in 1965. Plath said, in this poem, the speaker is an executive, a sort of exacting super salesman. He wants to be sure the applicant for his marvelous product really needs it and will treat it right. So let's start with that. Who's the applicant and what is the product?
1: I mean, I I read this, uh, you know, the applicant can be a, a number of different ideas but to me it, it's it's a woman and whether she's worth marrying
2: mm. mm-hmm.
1: that that's the way i look at it and um i guess the product is the child and by extension uh, a home a hearth and the husband
0: ah okay so, so the, <laughs> we had a different read it you and i i was yeah. i was reading the product as the woman sort of like this doll this big life-size doll Who's uh-huh. almost like a Stepford wife, but it does tie into that same idea of domesticity. I guess here's the here's the wife you think you want. Here's we're just gonna wrap this up and and give it to you, and kind of mocking the person for uh, wanting that model or that product.
1: Yeah, I mean, they, there's a lot of like, well, do you, do you even know what you want, and what are the, some of the things that I can convince you are the positives about right. this applicant. And I think that, that's what's so much fun about this poem is that it, it, it's dark, but at the same time, you know, all these little questions she asks are very funny. Like, will you marry it? It is guaranteed yeah. to thumb shut your eyes at the end.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and will you marry it, marry it, marry it? Like it's, yeah. it's in a, a kind of, teasing or taunting.
1: Wait, so if you th- if you think the product is the wife, who's the applicant? It's like some kind of like go between who
0: The applicant is like the husband who or you know the potential husband who comes in and is looking to acquire the wife. Oh, okay. So, at this point, Plath was married. She had a couple of kids and it was a time when women married younger. She was still quite young, and in fact, I think this was written the year when she learned that that her husband Ted Hughes, the poet, had been cheating on her and the two had separated. So in any event, that's the backdrop. It's always hard to kind of disentangle Plath from the autobiography, but do you view this poem autobiographically or as a comment on society?
1: I mean, it's hard to escape Ted Hughes in, mm-hmm. in a po- poem like this. And um, I find Plath is never very heavy handed. I think when she talks about societal duties and the, the what it means to be a mother, it's done in a very respectful almost way. Like, it's so hard to begin to understand what's wrong with it because it's been this is the way it's been for so many so many years but at the same time this is where it ends and then it's the, that kind of like suddenness mm. of like respect for tradition and respect for that she you know comments on out of the blue in the way I, the way i read this poem mm. i mean because so you have stuff like it can sew it can cook it can talk 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 it works there's nothing wrong with it yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess there, in my mind, it's like a combination of like the wife and the child in the home. Mm-hmm. But there's a distance from it that keeps it from being this very simple lesson about, okay, this is the experience she's had with Ted Hughes.
2: Yeah.
0: Oh, okay. Let me throw out my reading of this and see <laughs> okay. what you think. So i I can only really understand the first five stanzas if I look at the last, after I get to the last three stanzas. Mm -hmm. Uh, So my clues here are the, when she says, well, what do you think of that? Naked is paper to start, but in 25 years she'll be silver in 50 gold. And so I'm looking at the anniversaries, the wedding anniversary gifts. So paper is year one, uh, 25 years she'll be silver. That's the silver anniversary in 25 and in 50 gold. So this is sort of like, Okay, here's your new wife. First, just paper, but then eventually maturing into silver and gold. And this is the living doll that can sew and cook. And it's kind of mocking the domestic life. Mm-hmm. This is almost like a Stepford Wife uh, and talk, 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 which is probably mocking the, the male view of women that, you know, all they're going to do is, is uh, they'll cook for you and sew for you and they'll talk your ear off and that'll be what you grumble about and, and that kind of thing. Now the the line that that kind of stops me is mm-hmm. it works let's see where is it everywhere you look a living doll everywhere you look and part of me thinks it was sort of a throwaway phrase to rhyme with Cook but mm-hmm. uh, you know I, I don't associate plath with casual phrases so I'm thinking everywhere you look how do you read that line I think part of me thinks it's that she'll never leave, that she's always there. You can't escape her. A living doll everywhere you look.
1: It's kind of haunting. Yeah. I mean, I I, I take it to mean that it's, that there are millions of dolls like this.
0: Oh, right. So like the Stepford Wives, that they're,
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, at some point, you know, the weird thing about this poem is that when it starts are you our sort of person yeah right it's almost like the person who's asking these questions is a man yeah and the applicant for this job is a woman Mm. but then there are moments where it seems like the applicant and that's primarily i guess in my way I, i i want to read it but I can see how you're saying the applicant is a man and the product is whether he'll he'll marry this wife. But to me, it's almost like whether the wife wants to be part of this life.
0: Yeah, right. Well, that's the question we ask, I guess, because look at the man. I mean, are you our sort of person? And then it's do you wear a glass eye, false teeth or a crutch, a brace or a hook?
1: Yeah, rubber breasts. Rubber I mean,
0: breasts or a rubber crotch? What kind of a man is that? Stitches to show something's missing? It, yeah. It's sort of, you know, that's not exactly an everyman. That's not exactly a, a man in a gray flannel suit. That's sort of, a, I guess it's saying all men have some flaw or other, uh, is represented by the glass eye or the false teeth. But I have another theory. and this ties back to what i was the line that stopped me before a living doll everywhere you look part of me wondered if everywhere you look was Mm -hmm. the sexual reference as if to say if you look under her dress you'll see a doll-like smoothness Mm -hmm. you won't see any there will be no nothing explicit will be there it'll be just like a doll And then I'm looking at that first paragraph, rubber breasts or a rubber crotch. Mm. You know, what Mm -hmm. the heck is a rubber crotch? So I did some research on this. (laughs) I don't, I don't know that anyone is, uh, has has set this forward or if this is a Jack Wilson special, but part of me thinks Plath with her kids were playing with her kids dolls and she had this idea. Barbie had come out in 1959 and mm-hmm. Ken came out in 1961. Right. And I'm wondering if part of her is looking at these dolls and you know, there's this doll with the empty head and the hole and the imageless eye. It, mm-hmm. it just seems like she may be looking at these kind of rubberized figures and saying, Oh, these aren't these ideals of a married couple. But then again, Aren't they also completely bizarre when compared with humans? So it's—I just wondered if she was drawing upon some of that, some of that imagery for uh, the man and the yeah. woman we see here.
1: One additional thing I'll say about the questions: I agree with you about the the smoothness of those kind of dolls. You know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know the way every any kid of that era would take take off all the clothes and wondered where were the genitals,
2: <laughs> right?
1: You know. Yep. So, but I, I will say something about the, you know, the, the, these questions, they, I, I always feel like the more I read this, these are the questions of the reader as they're reading it. Mm. And it's you almost mean, like, are you
0: our sort of person? Question like yeah, that. And yeah, like, no, who, no, like, yeah. where,
1: like, how do you view this kind of interview?
2: Yeah.
1: And you know,
0: will you marry it? Which comes yeah. up all the time, but it. You know, not yeah. her <laughs> or him, but it.
1: Yeah, I mean, this this poem I really chose because of these kind of questions and the repetition of the questions. It's, um, she wrote a, a villanelle, which is a particular type of poem that repeats. I don't mm. know if you know it, yep. but it's five stanzas and right. the last line of the first three stanzas repeat. Yeah, yeah. Um, she wrote one called, I think, um, a, a Mad Girl's Love, which yep. is excellent. But, uh, you know, this poem reminds me a little bit of a Villanelle, like something very classical.
0: Mm-hmm. It's got these returns. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's got a lot of morbidity or there, there's something edgy here in Dark. I yeah. mean, we'll, we'll make new stock from the salt.
1: Oh, you know what I... Yeah. You know what? I mean, that I wrote on the margins I'm looking at now is I wrote post mastectomy female genital mutilation (laughs) by rubber crotch.
0: Yeah, (laughs) that was my. It seems simple, but when you dig into these metaphors and the imagery, it's it's uh, kind of twisted. And, you know, I like that they're both naked. They're sort of Adam and Eve. Yeah. Uh but on the other hand, they're Adam and Eve that are kind of either neutered or some of their humanity is completely destroyed here. They're not exactly the idyllic couple in the garden. They're all mangled and mutilated.
1: And, yeah, and how about that reference to how how about the suit black and stiff? Believe me, they'll bury you in it. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: That's a nice little uh twist. <laughs> to, you know, a formal dress and, you know, a festive outing, to get buried in it.
0: Okay. Well, we've got four others, so let's move to the next one. Okay. And let's listen to Lady Lazarus.
4: Lady Lazarus. I have done it again. One year in every ten I manage it. A sort of walking miracle. My skin bright as an nasty lampshade. My right foot a paper my face a featureless fine Jew linen. Peel off the napkin, O oh my enemy. Do I terrify? Yes, yes, Herr Professor, it is I can you deny the nose, the eye pits, the full set of teeth? The sour breath will vanish in a day. Soon soon the flesh the grave cave ate will be at home on me, and I a smiling woman. I'm only thirty, and like the cat, I have nine times to die. This is number three. What a trash to annihilate each decade, what a million filaments. The peanut-crunching crowd shoves in to see them and wrap me hand and foot, the big strip tease. Gentlemen, ladies, these are my hands, my knees. I may be skin and bone, I may be Japanese, nevertheless, I am the same, identical woman. The first time it happened, I was ten. It was an accident. The second time I meant to last it out and not come back at all. I rocked shut to the seashell. They had to call and call and pick the worms off me like sticky pearls. Dying is an art like everything else. I do it exceptionally well. I do it so it feels like hell, I do it so it feels real, I guess you could say, I have a call. It's easy enough to do it in a cell, it's easy enough to do it and stay put. It's the theatrical comeback in broad day to the same place, the same face, the same brute, amused shout, a miracle that knocks me out. There is a charge for the eyeing of my scars. There is a charge for the hearing of my heart. It really goes. And there is a charge, a very large charge, for a word or a touch or a bit of blood or a piece of my hair or my clothes. So, so, Herr Doctor. So, Herr Enemy. I am your opus. I am your valuable. The pure gold baby that melts to a shriek. I turn and burn Do not think I underestimate your great concern Ash, ash, you poke and stir Flesh, bone There is nothing there A cake of soap, a wedding ring, a gold filling Hear God, hear Lucifer Beware, beware Out of the ash I rise with my red hair and I eat men like
0: air. Okay, Mike. This is called one of her Holocaust poems. What's happening in Lady Lazarus?
1: Ah, oh, this is a, this is a kind of an incredible poem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is one of those that you become a fan of poetry. I think when you read this. Yeah. Yeah. You you read this and you're just blown away. You know, I read this. As a positive poem, <laughs> okay. I read it almost like the person is sort of like a superhero,
2: mm-hmm.
1: like made out of. I I think of it as like made out of the evil actions of men. The the, you know the the skin that's yep. as bright as a Nazi lampshade. Yep. Um,
0: the body has been used for soap and gold fillings.
1: Yeah, and then you you get these great visceral. Uh, references to what the Germans, the Nazis did to the Jews in concentration camps. Mm -hmm. And then you get this almost epiphany at the end, which is this dying is an art like everything else. I do it exceptionally well. Yeah. Oh, it's so haunting.
0: And uh, I am your opus.
1: Yeah, I am your valuable. I think the first time I read this, I could not believe that. Weird transition. And then a lot of these German titles, Herr Air, Air God, Herr Air Lucifer, Herr Doctor.
0: I am your opus. I am your valuable, the pure gold baby that melts to a shriek. I turn and burn.
2: Ugh.
1: It, you know, it, there's a lot of need and desire. There's an interplay of them here about being valuable and being needed um, and then being dominated you can read it as a Holocaust poem. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously it is, but you can also read it as just a twisted relationship.
0: Well, and she herself had had sort of these risings from the dead where she had she had an illness when she was 10 that I think she almost died from, and then she had a suicide attempt that she survived, and she's writing from the vantage point of someone who has, has made it back.
1: Writing about suicide, writing about death, it, it can be very can can fall very flat you know the way she does it is funny (laughs) Mm -hmm. disturbing and i mean sometimes i almost think this this poem reads like an uh an instruction manual you know like these are my hands my knees i may be skin and bone like
0: like a catalog yeah yeah Um, and i think i said she she almost died from disease it was actually a swimming accident that she had when she was 10. hmm So she's, it's almost like she's rising up. And then the final stanza, it's just, it's just incredible. Out of the ash, I rise with my red hair and I eat men like air. (laughs) Uh, Do you think she's saying, is the speaker here Jewish? Is she saying we're all Jewish in a sense, or that she's calling out, you know, the Nazis humans did this to other human beings. And she's saying, we, you know, we're, the world is filled with Germans and this this black heart of the Nazis. You know, do you think this is about the Nazis or the victims or both or what? I,
1: I, I think she wants the weight of history yeah. in this poem, and she wants the Bible. She wants to bring the Bible to life in this poem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is a the other reason I love this poem is that it's sort of it's everything that I think Pound or Eliot this is kind of like a Pound Elliot style poem Mm
2: -hmm.
1: responding to an entire tradition of poetry. I mean, this poem is like, is you know, it's sort of like resetting, uh, all of poetry. Mm. That's, I mean, I think of it as like, almost like this marker, like Mm. poetry before lady, lady Lazarus. And I mean, you can say that about poetry before Ariel and poetry after Ariel. Hmm. No.
0: Do you think she was conscious of that? Like she was thinking, okay, we just went through the Holocaust uh, not that long ago, less than 20 years previously. Do you think she was saying it's time for to turn a page here and do something new and different with poetry?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of poets were struggling with that. That's the whole um mm. Adorno saying there can be no poetry after the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. There can be there can be no art after the Holocaust. In in her poems, this one especially, you can see where she could have changed things and gone down a different path.
2: Yeah.
1: A poem like this could have been very, much longer. Yeah. But she ends it so abruptly. Yeah. You know, the the, the man like air.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, her, her use of illusions is remarkable because it's just enough that you feel her con- connection to history and her knowledge of history, but it's never uh, that she takes you out of the present
0: oh, and of course her own father is German he had died when she was a girl, but I think her recollection of him apparently was that he had a really thick German accent and and mm-hmm. then going through the war she was probably hearing about you know the the Germans as villains and trying to reconcile that with her memory of her father it seems like German themes and and nazis and you know the holocaust sort of carried with her throughout her writing life
1: yeah it's courageous to try to even write a poem like this you you must feel that it's worth telling Mm -hmm. trying to tell a poem like this i mean You know, the reception today of a line like my skin bright as the Nazi lampshade is incredible. I mean, imagine what it was back then. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think that's the thing that maybe people who haven't encountered Plath and who just sort of know the basics of her story.
1: Yeah. Sixty one. I mean, that's that's like 50, 50 more than 60 years ago. Yeah. Amazing.
0: They might not. might not fully appreciate how courageous she is that's a really good word really good way to describe her that you might think well she's kind of this juliet figure she's in love and she's sort of doomed and she's young and and kind of that she's a teenager you know she's writing like a teenager and you sort of miss how uh how bold and she's staking out territory here that still is shocking
1: yeah i mean lines like you know There is a charge for the eyeing of my scars. There is a charge for the hearing of my heart. It really goes. Mm. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm just such a big fan. Like, I even will recommend the Gwyneth Paltrow, Daniel Craig film of (laughs) Sylvia Sylvia (laughs) Plath, which I know was panned, but um,
0: I think it's worth watching. yeah. yeah. (laughs) Okay, so let's move to the next one and listen to Morning Song.
5: Morning Song by Sylvia Plath. Love set you going like a fat gold watch. The midwife slapped your footsoles, and your bald cry took its place among the elements. Our voices echo... Magnifying your arrival, new statue. In a drafty museum, your nakedness shadows our safety. We stand round blankly as walls. I'm no more your mother than the cloud that distills a mirror to reflect its own slow effacement at the wind's hand. All night, your moth breath flickers among the flat pink roses. I wake to listen. A far sea moves in my ear. One cry, and I stumble from bed, cow heavy and floral in my Victorian nightgown. Your mouth opens clean as a cat's. The window square whitens and swallows its dull stars. And now you try your handful of notes. The clear vowels rise like balloons.
0: Okay, so I read this as being about motherhood. And the question, I think that's fairly obvious. But the question here is what kind of mother?
1: You know, I i think this poem shows many of the different kinds of successful mothers, mm-hmm. and, you know, um, and how my reading is kind of Silvio was not one of them. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, great phrasings like cow-heavy and floral. and Mm -hmm. But the line that just stops me is when she says, uh, I'm no more your mother than a cloud that distills Mm. a mirror to reflect its own slow effacement at the wind's hand.
0: Yeah. So let's get to that. First, I wanted to talk about just the lack of sentimentality (laughs) and the the starkness of the imagery. It does seem to be, as you're saying, uh, Sylvia Plath saying, I know what motherhood is supposed to be. I know what the... What it is in the storybooks and in the ladies' magazines. She had a real aversion mm. to ladies' magazines. She called them, you know, sort of the blither of ladies' magazines. Right. You know, she's trying to live out this, to be this domestic goddess in a way, but aware constantly that, that that is not what she is or what she aspires to be. And that it's only, I don't know if, it, I mean, it's, it's in a way, it's like a prison the image of what she thinks she's supposed to be but she also doesn't seem to be totally trapped either she's she rises above it at least in her poetry that she's her own person but then that line there's beautiful imagery before we get there the the moth breath flickers among Mm. the flat pink roses which i think is maybe wallpaper it's just beautiful imagery the mouth is as clean as a cat i mean there is like you feel like she loves the baby yeah, In a yeah. kind of reverential way of the miracle of this, this tiny baby. But then there is that line, I'm no more your mother than the cloud that distills a mirror to reflect its own self-effacement at the wind's hand. So I sort of get what that means. I take it as motherhood means a loss of self, a handing off to a new generation that part of parenting is always kind of this realization that eventually you won't be the young person anymore. And in fact, you'll be on the decline. And as the young person is on the ascent, but, Mm. uh, and that your own identity changes from being a free autonomous individual to one that's a little bit defined, especially by a baby where you have to give everything to the baby all your time and keeping the baby alive becomes the most important thing in your life. But I don't really understand the cloud that distills a mirror. Mm-hmm. Does that distill in the sense of summarizing? Or is the mirror evaporated into the cloud? Or are we supposed to think of a foggy mirror, that there's a cloud on the mirror? And why do we need a mirror if we have a cloud? I I, <laughs> I've, I had a hard time unpacking this, this uh, phrase.
1: I always think of this as like... You know, as wonderful as a child is, and it's kind of a miracle, this new statue, mm-hmm. you know, the nakedness shadows our safety. It's arbitrary that you have to take care of this mm-hmm. baby. Yeah. Um, and he, here's my kind of Korean reading of that phrase it's just a, a very, very Western philosophy that you wouldn't feel the blood tie but you would rely on the image and the appearance of a baby it's the, to me this is like almost like the mother and the baby resemble each other mm-hmm. but then what it would take for the mother to keep looking into that mirror would be to sacrifice her mm. own life right and maybe the, the, the reflection
0: face. of the self yeah. even though it's kind of a cloudy and ephemeral and changing reflection of the self and ultimately it's a transplanting one the the reflection is going to replace the self
1: yeah so like that this is like to me a very western idea of motherhood because for a korean this the appearance would be irrelevant because the blood would carry the day mm. and there's no mention in this poem of any kind of innate feeling of connection mm-hmm. to the baby it's very much what the the baby does and what the baby looks like and what what I do so I find this poem fascinating I mean the person the mother is obviously incredibly sensitive you know I wait Mm -hmm. to listen a far sea moves in my ear and yet cannot make a connection to this baby right yeah
0: it's it's almost like the baby is an object like a little work of art
1: yeah. And, and and um the irony is this is one of the few poems I I have memorized so I used to read it to my uh infant daughter all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Cuz I I just I love the beginning love set you going like a fat gold watch. It's almost like a pop song. Yeah. You know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Did you change the the lines at all? No. No. You just I didn't. You just let yeah. her have it,
1: yeah. And I, I, I love, a, you know, I know one your of my mother. Yeah, yeah. I mean that. So when you, you know, I mean, <laughs> the reader, the listeners have just heard it, read that line when you've memorized it. That line is so easy to memorize. Hmm. The I'm no more your mother. Yeah, because it's like this huge pronouncement. Everything else is sort of like a, a, a bit. You know, jigsaw puzzly. right? You it's kind it of together. third
0: person. You're sort yeah. of you're you're stringing together descriptions and and yeah. um, imagery one after the other.
1: So I I urge people to memorize a poem because I think you definitely read it, interpret it differently once you've memorized it. Because there's certain mm-hmm. things that you find easier to memorize than other parts, and right. you know you absorb it completely differently. And then just imagine you know in ancient times the way people used to memorize lyric poems
0: yeah and uh, part of it becomes just sort of a a musicality and maybe sort of a, a droning or a yeah. a rhythm that sort of rocks you to sleep and then there's a phrase that stands out like i'm no more your mother
1: and it's a great parlor trick a party trick when you <laughs> when, when you <laughs> recite a poem i remember i i went to uh, a, a, a little party in high school and there was a guy there who um, had could recite to be or not to be.
0: Oh, right. The whole thing. The whole thing. Yeah. I, yeah. I knew a guy who did the same thing.
1: So he had learned it when he was 12 <laughs> and he he said he, he just never forgot it and he was 16 and we were at a party and he recited the whole thing.
0: Yeah. And then he <laughs> sort of like jump up on a table and and everyone <laughs> looks over he pulls his shirt off and he starts you know doing the whole thing and then everyone applauds and (laughs) uh so do you announce it do you say morning song by sylvia plath (laughs) and start reciting or do you tell people
1: yeah i usually i usually get into conversation about um how well and how poorly people remember plots of novels Mm -hmm. and i and then i kind of (laughs) jest about how you know what impresses people is to memorize a poem And then
0: Then you have one.
1: Yeah. So I I supply my own commentary, you know, so.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, let's, what are we up to now? Is this our, this is our fourth one. So let's move on to The Colossus. The Colossus by Sylvia Plath. I shall never get you put together entirely, pierced, glued, and properly jointed. Mule bray, pig grunt, and body cackles proceed from your great lips. It's worse than a barnyard. Perhaps you consider yourself an oracle, mouthpiece of the dead, or of some god or other. Thirty years now I have labored to dredge the silt from your throat. I am none the wiser. Scaling little ladders with glue pots and pails of Lysol, I crawl like an ant in mourning, over the weedy acres of your brow, to mend the immense skull plates and clear the bald, white tumuli of your eyes. A blue sky out of the Orestia arches above us. O Father, all by yourself you are pithy and historical as the Roman Forum. I open my lunch on a hill of black cypress. Your fluted bones and acanthine hair are littered in their old anarchy to the horizon line. It would take more than a lightning stroke to create such a ruin. Nights, I squat in the cornucopia of your left ear, out of the wind, counting the red stars and those of plum color. The sun rises under the pillar of your tongue. My hours are married to shadow. No longer do I listen for the scrape of a keel on the blank stones of the landing. Okay, so the Colossus in ancient Greece was a statue meant to invoke a dead person. Pretty clearly, the Colossus here is the speaker's father. So what drew you to this one?
1: Um, I think it's because it's uh short and not as glossy mm, a, a, mm-hmm. in a way than a lot of her poems. Mhm. It, it's one that I that's really deepened oh, over many readings that i've uh, you know the more i read it the more the meanings deepen i i I love the i think you know it's it's a timely poem today with celebrity uh worship and you know the kind of way people might be remembered and i mean ultimately no matter how much of an asshole you are you want to be remembered well you Mm want to people care about their legacy and so yeah, I like this poem because it, it really grapples with that kind of idea of like how can what what image do you leave behind and who's yeah. in charge of your image? You know, right. this whole idea of like fixing this colossus.
0: Yeah, it's got such a great mood. It's got this yeah. this feeling. It's got the throwback to the ancient world, which always gives me this feeling of excitement and melancholy, and it really yeah. captures that here. It, it, just the idea that civilizations. Even the greatest of civilizations will end, and famous people will die, and statues will crumble. And then you get Plath, or you get the reader. I think of it as Plath. I always, mm-hmm. I almost never read a Plath poem and think the speaker is anyone but Plath. Really, um, <laughs> maybe the applicant, not so much. But these others, I, I just think of it as being her. And here we have her eating lunch on a hill of black cypress, staring at the pieces of her father, or. Trying to repair the giant figure like an ant in morning with glue pots and pails of Lysol. Yeah. Why would you need Lysol, by the way, to ward off the maggots?
1: Yeah, I guess
2: so.
0: (laughs) 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 I mean, or dredge the silt from your throat.
1: Um, it that that stanza is perfect (laughs) because I think before you get there, you at least I forget that the colossus is so big, and then when it says like. Over the weedy acres of your brow. Yeah, right. Then you get you you know you get the sense of perspective. But yep,
0: I don't even this giant this giant crumbling stone. I, I mean,
1: in 1961, pails of Lysol was it like a liquid form? I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't even know that was. Yeah, I mean,
0: i maybe. uh Did they used to spray Lysol into water? I don't no, know. Maybe to sort of mix it up into a so you can yeah. use it almost like with a sponge or a mop.
1: You know what a great opening line! I shall never get you put together entirely.
2: Mm, yeah, <laughs> it's and worse then than like in a barnyard.
1: Yeah, um, and then nights I squat in the cornucopia of your left ear out of the wind.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, um, that's what's so great. On the one hand, she's kind of victorious. She's kind of triumphant, right? She's the one yeah. that's that survived. She's the one that can comment on how. Decrepit this thing is, but on the other hand, she's tiny. Yeah. You know, it's it's so majestic and and soaring. It is kind of like how you feel when you go to the Roman Forum or the Colosseum or something. And you, on the one hand, you think, "Well, look at this. It's old. It's broken down." And here I am, intact and alive. I guess it's better to be me. And then you absorb the majesty of it, and you think, "No, this thing is." Is immemorial. I'm just a speck on the planet, and I'm going to be dust. And and this thing is already survived for two thousand years, at least in this form. And it's it's known a kind of achievement that I never will. I'll never live up to what this thing is.
1: Yeah, I mean, and to and to feel that all that in such a compact, dense. I mean, that, that, that it has to be something said about the density of, of her poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it is I think that Lowell says that the, the first time he encountered her poems, she took a class with him and the first time he encountered her poems, he just could not forget them. Hmm. I mean, Yeah. um, and then when her collection came out, he was like, I read those <laughs> I had read... <laughs> and so a typical Lowell fashion, he was like, he, you know, he, he did the introduction to Ariel and, yeah. um. But yeah, I mean, that that's the accessibility, you know, the squat and the cornucopia of your left ear. That's <laughs> yeah. great.
0: The mood of time being spent, my hours are married to shadow, I haven't learned anything, I'm not wiser. Yeah. I no longer do I listen for the scrape of a keel on the blank stones of the landing. You're not coming back, that's all there is. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, all of these references too, the Oresteia, the tragedies of Aeschylus, Agamemnon, the libation yeah. bears, the Eumenides, they're all about family murder. Oh, I didn't. Yeah, I yeah. guess I, I yeah. looked
1: those up. I did look up acanthine uh, hair. So. Uh-huh.
2: <laughs> I think I did so, as well.
1: Yeah. Acanthus, white water flower. Hmm. So.
0: so. Okay. So let's move to our last one, Okay. The Stones. We'll listen to that, and then we'll come back with our final Plath analysis.
3: This is the city where men are mended. I lie in a great anvil. The flat blue sky circle flew off like the hat of a door when I fell out of the light. I entered the stomach of indifference the wordless cupboard. The mother of pestles diminished me. I became a still pebble. The stones of the belly were peaceable, the headstone quiet, jostled by nothing. Only the mouth hole piped out, importunate cricket in a quarry of silences. The people of the city heard it. They hunted the stones, Taciturn and separate, the mouth hole crying their locations. Drunk as a fetus, I suck at the paps of darkness. The food tubes embrace me. Sponges kiss my lichens away. The jewel master drives his chisel to pry open one stone eye. This is the after hell. I see the light. A wind unstoppers the chamber of the ear, old warrior. Water mollifies the flint lip, and daylight lays its sameness on the wall. The grafters are cheerful, heating the pincers, hoisting the delicate hammers. A current agitates the wires, vault upon vault, catgut stitches my fissures. A workman walks by carrying a pink torso. The storerooms are full of hearts. This is the city of spare parts. My swaddled legs and arms smell sweet as rubber. Here they can doctor heads or any limb. On Fridays the little children come to trade their hooks for hands. Dead men leave eyes for others. Love is the uniform of my bald nurse. Love is the bone and sinew of my curse. The vase, reconstructed, houses the elusive rose. Ten fingers shape a bowl for shadows. My mendings itch. There is nothing to do. I shall be good as new.
0: Okay. So this one, I found this one to be the hard. I, I guess I found the, uh, the Colossus. Well, maybe the Colossus was the easiest. Actually, I thought Morning Song was sort of the most beautiful mm-hmm. and maybe the easiest to read. I found this one to be the hardest. It's so harrowing. It's, it's achingly beautiful and poignant, but it's, it's our speaker here is in going through a mental breakdown and experiencing electroshock therapy as Plath did. I feel like it's in the after hell of her experience. Yeah. I mean, this is is... the after hell. That'd be the part. If you memorize this, that'd probably be the line that would stand out. Right. This is the after hell. I see the light.
1: And this is, this is one of her most depressing poems. Mm -hmm. Um, They're just little glimpses of hope, which I love. Like on Fridays, the little children come.
0: It's like life has just pounded the soul into submission. Yeah. And like the rock turned into a pe- a pebble at the bottom of the quarry.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I yeah, I love that the the mother of pestles.
0: Yeah, but then the hospital, a city being built, the pebble can be used in that context. It's like the the pebble's soul is crushed, but aspiring for meaning and greatness. Yeah, just like the person who's going through what she's going through in this poem.
1: I, I almost read this poem as making me feel like I'm just a whining, a whiny, pathetic person. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> but I have, I have like no idea of what it means to be unhappy.
2: <laughs> mm,
0: right. And all your problems. I, I wouldn't say first world problems. It's more like happy person problems. Yeah, yeah.
1: The other way, I, 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 the reason I love this poem is I almost read it as kind of like a sci-fi, where the sci-fi becomes really primitive.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, this whole like imagery she uses of the city of spare parts, the city where men are like put back together. It, you know, it's that idea that in the future things will just kind of return to a primitive age. Mm-hmm. You know that you know that will come back around, and that, that that's the that's the future where we're headed. Um, yeah. It's a very primal poem like what what keeps you you know where do you get your sustenance and where do you where do you find the will to live I mean yeah. it's the, just the most basic questions you know the stones
0: Yeah So right. how do you how do you take the pounding how do you survive yeah. what life is going to ask you to endure yeah.
1: But I would urge people to remember the line on Fridays, the little children come. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) As the happy note.
0: Well, and also there's sort of this feeling of, um, you know, for a depressed person or for an alcoholic, or, you know, there's this feeling when you see kids, there's something that's always so, so achingly beautiful about that. Yeah. That they try to put on a good face or they, they, They're not trying to spoil everyone else's time, especially children. They would rather hide it or it it gives you this air of self-loathing or frustration or disappointment with oneself. You know, they don't want their misery. It's almost like you get the feeling she she wouldn't mind if her misery spilled over and, and spilled onto her father. But when it spills over onto children, at once the children are sort of inspirational but also it just seems to make her feel bad <laughs> yeah okay well why don't we leave things there this was quite an episode now i do want to do an episode that's just about her and ted hughes which i think is going to be a fascinating look at that kind of incredible literary marriage and literary life and it's had such a legacy yeah even beyond the poetry but the poetry of both is is really first rate and so makes it a really important story in the history of literature so we will uh put that on our list of things to turn to probably in 2020 and for now mike thanks as always for joining me on the history of literature thanks jack <music> Hey, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I'm so glad you could join us. Sylvia Plath, there's something wonderful about reading and listening to her in December, the end of the year, the end of autumn, the final cold landscape. A. Alvarez said that Plath made poetry and death inseparable. The one, he said, could not exist without the other in Plath's poems. He went on to say, "...in a curious way, the poems read as though they were written posthumously." End quote. What an extraordinary sensation to impart on the reading public. To write as if your poems were written posthumously. And in a way, her life has been like that. Her life and her legend. She hovers over all of us, even now, even today, a half century later. She's still there, watching, writing, waiting. Waiting for us to catch up, wanting us to understand, to see, to feel. And sometimes she's indifferent to us. She's the panther on the walking down the main street of the quiet town. It doesn't matter where she came from or where she's headed. She's there. She's here. Shockingly, breathtakingly, here. I'm Jack Wilson.